in the 21st century, we really should not be seeing a rise in hunger. We know what to do. It's time for conversations about our food and how it's grown on Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. Farm to Table Talk covers all aspects, I think, of getting food to tables. And, and it seems especially appropriate to pay attention to a growing crisis a growing global food crises and how we get our arms around it and what what matters and who's doing things to try to make it different is there anything we can do individually there's these are questions that should occur to us all are important sure it's important to know how our food is produced uh, and we want to encourage it to be produced in sustainable fashion and see farmers succeed and see public succeed. But in the end, we have to have people being fed. And I'm really happy to welcome my guest today who has that assignment of being engaged in a, in a very increasingly important projects and programs around the world. I want to welcome Ozma Latif. And Ozma is a policy lead with SDG2 Advocacy Hub. And that's going to be one of our first jobs is to explain that acronym because it's not, it doesn't just roll off the tongue here. Uh, Ozma, welcome to Farm to Table Talk. Thank you so much for having me. Really looking forward to the conversation. Boy, I am too. I am too. I'm looking forward to chatting with you about all that you're doing, but we got to start with a little bit of explanation because for most of my listeners, they're going to scratch their head and say, wait a minute, SDG2, how do I remember that? It's uh, uh, If somebody tried to brand you so that you were trying to be marketed more easily, I suspect they would have come up with a different name than just giving you an acronym and a number. But uh, what is it? Yes. So in 2015, um, world leaders agreed to a set of goals. They're called the Sustainable Development Goals. So SDG comes from that. Um, the Sustainable Development Goals really um, envision a world where everyone is prosperous and has the um, capacity to live to their po full potential in ways in which um, foster peace, prosperity, and protects the planet. So the Sustainable Development Goals were a set of 17 goals. They include ending poverty by 2030, ending hunger and all forms of malnutrition by 2030. That's goal number two. So SDG two is the goal to end hunger and all forms of malnutrition by 2030. It includes several other goals and um, including gender equity, um, education for all, improving health outcomes for everyone. But it also recognizes the interconnectedness between the goals. So there are goals around protecting the environment, protecting our planet, climate change. There are goals around sustainable cities, and there are goals around governance and improving um, uh, peace and justice, uh, you know, goals towards peace and justice. And then there's the, the final goal, goal 17, is uh, the a goal around partnership, how we all need to come together to be able to deliver on this set of interconnected goals. So who, let me, let me try to rephrase that then. So who is are making these goals? Is this a United Nations or is it a broader than United Nations, but are the United Nations members? Yes. So it really came in 2000. There was a set of eight goals that were called the Millennium Development Goals. Um, and they, ex they, were, they expired in 2015. And those goals were... Um, 
largely focused on some of the core issues, health, poverty, hunger, um, education, um, gender equity, things like that. And But when we got to 2015, or in the lead up to 2015, there was a recognition that we were making progress towards the, the Millennium Development Goals, but the job was not done. Um, for example, the Millennium Development Goals focused on halving the population um, that was experiencing extreme poverty by 2015. So we made significant progress towards that, that goal, but you don't want to just halve that population, you want to end extreme poverty. And so there was a sense of momentum that we were making progress, but the job wasn't done. And in order to get the job done, you needed to really take a much more comprehensive approach than had been done um, with the eight goals in the Millennium Development Goals. So in the lead up to 2015, there were a series of there was a global conversation, civil society organizations, the private sector, governments, um, a, an enormous process to hear from people all over the world about what this new set of goals should look like. So yes, it was driven by the member states of the United Nations, which is all, all countries, but it, it encompassed dialogues and um input from people all over the world. And so by 20, in 2015, what was adopted reflected this broad approach. Um, yeah, I'll stop there. Wow. So you take the whole world and, and in the world, you have to be able to take a picture of what is it like right now um, and and how can it become better? And then you apparently have to overlay that with kind of the extraordinary things that have been happening right now, such as pandemic, um, wars, violence in different areas, uh, and climate change. So, so one is to say that, okay, the area I'm going to be concerned with has to do with food and poverty, hunger and poverty. The area that we're looking at is the entire world. And then an important factor are these other things, again, such as a global pandemic and, and all these other issues. And again, extreme weather conditions. Um, did I get that part right? Yes. And one, you know, the Millennium Development Goals were focused really on developing countries. The difference, the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, really recognize that all countries are faced with challenges. Every country has ways in which it can reduce inequality, improve health outcomes, and contribute to a more sustainable planet. So the SDGs apply to all countries, not just um, uh, developing countries. And the the effort really underway is, you know, each country developing national plans around these 17 goals about wh what they would do to, um, what they need to do to achieve the sustainable development goals in their own context. So, for example, the United States is also thinking about um, its own progress towards the sustainable development goals. Germany is just as Nepal and uh, Uganda. So um, it's a global effort. There's an annual um, moment in July at the UN every, every year to check in on progress that's being made towards these goals. What was really exciting in 2015 was that sense of optimism, especially on SDG 2, the, the, goal, the, the goal to end hunger, we were really making substantial progress. Um, and so there was that sense of optimism that we could actually get the job done, you know, really um, reach, um, we would have to step up effort, but it was a feasible, it is, it was a feasible goal. Unfortunately, in the last um, seven years, there has been a, a, a confluence of issues, again, reflected in the interconnectedness of the world we live in, 
And we have actually seen a rise in hunger um, in the um, last uh, several, several years, an increase in the number of people suffering from hunger. And um, the conflict that we're seeing now in Ukraine um, is adding to the pressures that people are feeling in terms of food prices. I think we've all seen um, raising, rising anxiety about food prices here in the US, but that is also playing out in, in countries all over the world. And in many places, it's really much more, it's coming on the heels of economic um, downturns um, due to COVID and the pandemic, you know, still government still wrestling with the pandemic and, and its economic impact and conflict and the impact of climate change. So all of these things are compounding and we are unfortunately seeing a backsliding on the hunger goal. You know, I've mentioned in my podcast before that I sometimes go into the Clubhouse Rooms app and you can have conversations with people around the world. And one we were just in the other day, there was somebody that runs a program outside of Atlanta. And they were saying that people that were coming in to get food from these food hubs that were being set up for pantries and so forth, uh, there were lines going for miles to pull up there. And they were having to even close it early because, and when I asked, I said, well, I thought that unemployment was was coming down. And, and they just pointed out, yes, it is. But a couple of things happened here in some of these cities in, in the States, which Number one was inflation, that everything was, it was harder and harder to make ends meet. So, so food became an issue. And the other one we didn't think about much is that when kids are getting out of school, they were getting two meals a day at school. And many neighborhoods were sending food home Friday nights for the weekends. And that disappears too when you start the, when you start the summer. So there's stories like that. And then and then one other thing I was gonna I was gonna mention, you know, we know the the war in the Ukraine and, and the issues there, but an interesting point, apparently there's a lot of areas of the world that are having good crops of wheat. So just the raw material, there's going to be there's product available, but you get into distribution. So people that might have not be getting their wheat for staples out of Ukraine could be getting it from Australia and some other areas that fortunately are doing okay on their wheat crop this year. But then that gets into the whole distribution area. Uh, how, how do you get your arms around all the complexity of these issues? There's, there's so many moving parts to trying to solve this. Yeah. I mean, you've, you've, um, really outline some some core issues. Currently, we do produce enough food to feed the entire world's population. So sometimes I hear on the news that this is a food crisis. It's not really a food crisis. There is enough food that is grown um, on our planet to feed the world's population. It's really an issue of access. So being able to afford food that is available in grocery stores, in markets, and things like that. And then it's a question, as you note, about distribution. Where, where is the food being grown and, and how do you get it to where it needs to be? And then I think there's a third element, which is about nutrition. And are we are nutritious foods as affordable as they should be? And, um, you know, are people able to afford you know, feed their children um, the right nutrients that they need to to have healthy brains and healthy bodies. So I think there is a, it's, we need to separate out in a way, this question about food production from, you know, the nuances, because you won't, um, you really need to invest not only in, um, um, you know, general calories, you need to really make sure that the food that people are eating is good for their um, 
especially in vulnerable populations and especially in for children between um, uh, in that first 1,000 days between pregnancy and age two, it's really crucial that they are getting the right nutrients. So, um, so those are some of the uh, issues that we really need to tackle. And what's, what's been exciting to see is a shift in conversation from yields and um, to a, a, a more food systems approach um, to think about a our food systems and how all of these things play into each other. And with climate change, you know, um, we are seeing different, you know, different impacts. I mean, this year we've got food prices quite high as a result of the backlog from uh, COVID, you know, the supply chain issues as a result of COVID, and then you add on the Ukraine crisis. But if we have uh, unprecedented droughts or floods in any region, that will add another layer of pressure on food prices. So we are, you know, uh, watching with bated breath and hoping that, you know, um, the countries that can pick up some of the slack um, from, you know, the wheat that's tied up in Ukraine um, are not affected by any adverse weather um, this year as well, which would, you know, contribute to um, price, you know, increased prices. Well, we're getting used to not betting against adverse weather. It seems to be becoming the the norm rather than the exception. So it's not going to get easier on that front. And when you say pick up the slack, and you also mentioned earlier that it's not a question of enough food because there is enough food produced in the world. And I have, I have a lot of confidence in our ability to produce food, even in the face of the climate challenges that, that, we, that we have ahead. So it gets into distribution issues. So does that mean that uh, much of your job, you have to be able to promote raising funds to be able to uh, help with the distribution or to uh, invest in, in food to fill the gaps in, in these countries that are more impacted or some of the developing countries? Yeah. So I think it's a question I I would rather frame it as an investment, actually. I think one of the things that has um, become really visible through the COVID crisis, and I think, you know, we, we uh, were seeing this trend um, even before COVID, but COVID and then now the Ukraine crisis, I think there's a clear sense that, um, you know, when there were lockdowns, people, uh, food was not getting, there was very little trade. Food was not um, making it across borders. Um, and so local food systems became really important to meeting the needs of local communities. Um, and I, and you know, with climate change, um, you know, our, our food systems are contributing to climate change as much as they can be a solution to climate change. Um, you know, we are, the ways in which we're growing food, the ways in which food moves around the planet are all, you know, um, factors in the greenhouse gas emissions um, that, you know, there's a growing recognition that food is food and agriculture are a big part of that um, challenge. So as we think about sustainable food production, it needs, to, we need to think also about reducing that carbon footprint. And that means both thinking more regionally, more locally, it could also mean, um, shifting our diets away from um, crops and and um, uh, that come at a bigger, or crops and livestock that come at a bigger in cost to the environment and balancing the new, our need for good nutrition in all of that. 
So I think there are some interesting learnings coming out of the COVID crisis. I think even with with uh, the impact of the Ukraine crisis uh, on exacerbating the food prices that have been rising for a while and the fertilizer prices, we really need to think about how, how do we support um, in developing countries, particularly smallholder farmers who are, um, you know, central to their local food systems. But unfortunately, because of lack of um, financing and support, they're also um, unable to make ends meet and are the rising food prices are actually, which could potentially be good for small, good for farmers. Rising food prices means you get more for the, uh, for what you produce, but in too many instances in developing countries, smallholder farmers um, are actually net food um, buyers. And so these, because they're not getting enough out of their land, um, so rising food prices actually means that the people who are producing food are going hungry. Um, and they have and they have been for the last uh, seven years. We're seeing, you know, this rise rise in hunger. It's primarily a rural phenomenon. People who are um, you know, more remote and isolated. And we have to you know, I think there are there's lots of potential as we respond to this crisis, to, to um, invest in smallholders so that they can be as productive um, as they can and they can serve the, the needs of their local and regional f- food systems. And just adding yeah. to that, I think of the area, say in Africa, for example, uh, in Northern Africa, some of our, one of the major suppliers of fertilizers that are shipped to North America and then food grown there that might need to come back to relief to somewhere like Somalia or somewhere else. And, and you just look at the carbon footprint too, that we're, we're moving all of that raw material, you know, half a globe away, then you move it back half a globe away. And then you've got the challenges of the, of the distribution and getting it used uh, and and I want to go back to the nutrition. You mentioned something about the was it something like a thousand days after birth, or um, explain that of why that's so important from the time the child is born to those first couple of years. It's actually even before the child is born uh, in utero, and even before a woman becomes pregnant. There's so much evidence. Um, that was actually captured in the British medical journal, The Lancet. So it's very um, strong evidence that um, pregnant women, uh, the, the nutrition and well-being of pregnant women is really crucial to the unborn child. And then when um, when a child is born in in those first two years, there's so much growth that happens, both brain development and physical development, that sets you up for success. You know, you you can be, um, you know, your brain cells are growing. Your your um, the foundations of your body are really um, set in stone. In well, I shouldn't say set in stone, but it's a really crucial moment. Um, children who are malnourished, even for short periods of time during that thousand-day window, um, have some. It's really hard to gain back the loss in terms of uh, cognitive and physical development. So, children who are malnourished in that period are more likely to be stunted, so that they they are um, shorter in stature for their age, um, and that that height difference is just an outward manifestation of some of the things that are happening inside their bodies. Um, And um, if you are acutely malnourished, you're more likely to be wasted. So at risk of death um, from early childhood, and that can set in very quickly for young children. So it's really important um, 
you know, as food prices go up, to ensure that pregnant women, young children have access to good nutrition, because if they, if they lose out even in a, um, for a few weeks or months, it could have long-term impact on their, um, on their health and well-being, which then translates into an income in impact. Because if you aren't able to learn well in school, if you aren't able to concentrate in school, for example, uh, and have trouble learning, you'll also have trouble then getting a job that, you know, pays well. Um, if you are, if you have health outcomes um, that are impacted by your poor nutritional status as a child, Again, if you if you are um, sick, you're unable to work, which affects your income. So all of these things are connected, and we need. And for countries where there's a high burden of malnutrition amongst um, pregnant women and children, um, those countries have actually the the Lancet showed that there's a huge impact on GDP. Um, so. We have to think about um, all of these issues, and that's one of the things I love about SDG two. I should have said this at the beginning. The goal is quite comprehensive. SDG two, the goal to end hunger, has five targets. The targets are ending food insecurity, so you know um, hunger, the kind of hunger that we see, absence of calories. Ending all forms of malnutrition, which is the second target, 2.2. And that means ending wasting and stunting and, and overweight, obesity, and um, low birth weight, those kinds of things. Ending, uh, I, I should also say anemia um, is one of those uh, targets, and that's really affects pregnant women. Um, the third target is about livelihoods and productivity of smallholder farmers, small-scale food producers. Um, the fourth is around agricultural sustainability. And the fifth is around biodiversity. And so it's recognizing that all of, the, that to, that all of these things are interconnected, um, that you have to address calories, you have to address nutrients, you have to address livelihoods, you have to address um, the environment in which food can grow. How do you do that? That's it, a, kind of an overwhelming uh, challenge. I think, it, you know, it, it is, I think we have to invest in food systems. First of all, we have to recognize these things are interconnected. Right. And I think we are um, you know, last year, the United Nations hosted a food systems summit, which was looking at the, the interplay between um, agriculture, climate, nutrition, health, um, livelihoods. And, um, you know, it, it was a really important, I think, recognition of several goals, several of the sustainable development goals that really work together to to strengthen food systems for people. Um, so I think recognizing the problem, and then I think policy change, policies are really crucial because the things that we choose to invest in um, as a, you know, through our budget allocations, really then um, create um, the system in which we all operate. And I think the Ukraine crisis has shown in a way, in very stark relief, how vulnerable our global food system is. We have we are we've invested in a food system that um, you know has has us at a global level dependent on two countries for wheat, for a major portion of our wheat supply, on two countries for a major portion of our fertilizer supply. Um, so I think it's coming at a time when there is, you know, growing recognition that our food systems 
are failing to deliver good nutrition. They're coming at a very high cost from an environmental and a climate perspective that people who work in our food systems are are very vulnerable or suffer from uh, extreme, uh, you know, not being paid what they should for, um, you know, or up and down the food system, there's high levels of inequity and poverty. And so I think policies are, the policies to date have helped create a food system that needs fixing. And I think policies can fix food systems if enough people, uh, you know, um, call out the inequities and call out call for change. Um, I think there is a huge opportunity, and I think policymakers, because of this crisis and the impact of you know the rise in hunger we saw because of COVID, there is growing recognition that. Um, something needs to be done. And I think this is an important conversation at a really crucial time. Um, And it's it's an urgent conversation because um, the compounding nature of the crises that we're facing means we're going to see really a dramatic rise in hunger in ways we haven't seen in decades. Um, So our food system was delivering uh, adequate food, and we were making progress, and and hunger was going down, but it wasn't it. But there were challenges that we were not addressing earlier that we need to address with quite a bit of urgency. You know, you really make a good case with looking at the at the big picture, and everywhere has hunger issues. Uh, pretty much everywhere in the world. And I'm in Northern California and people feel, well, boy, aren't you lucky to be in the United States and it's a relatively rich country compared to to much of the world. Northern California, we produce a lot of food, yet in in the state capital where I live in California, we have 9,000 people on the streets that are homeless and, and even more in Sacramento than in San Francisco right now that are on the streets. And But we're addressing it in various ways. I mean, you still would have some people standing on corners with cardboard signs saying, I have hungry kids, but they also can get EBT cards where they can go to the farmer's market and they can use it for fresh fruit and vegetables. And they've got incentives there. And we have programs in all the supermarkets that, that give you a chance to donate to uh, healthy, hungry people, you know, in the community. So there are things going on, but, but everywhere has, has issues. So when you are a global program like this, though, it seems like you can describe what's going on. You can just you can identify areas of extreme needs, but it might come down to saying, "Okay, we're going to do more in Madagascar than we're going to do in Norway. Because um, and and how do you make every I don't know if you can make everybody happy while you're doing this important work, but it seems like you have to identify, don't you? what these needs are and where the areas to get intention and where funds might be able to be directed. Right. Absolutely. I mean, I think the sustainable development goals, as I mentioned, are global goals. They need to be um, uh, translated at the national level, even at the subnational level. So, you know, California has very different challenges, say, than um, Illinois or, or Mississippi. And so you do need, as you, you know, as you think about ending hunger in California, that would look very differently, perhaps, that, as it would in, um, in Madagascar or in, um, even, in, even in, your same, in the same country in Mississippi. So, um, so what's really important is, um, I think what what the SDGs do is they provide us a framework for the things that need to happen in order to end, you know, to end hunger. Um, and it's this in, these interconnected issues. 
Um, but they those those things have to happen, you know, be be addressed at at local, regional, and national level as well. Um, there are lots of in and of course the need and the budget capacity of countries varies very much. So in developing countries, um, they don't have as much fiscal space to be able to take action um, the way, um, you know, the United States or Norway um, mm -hmm. would be able to do it, or Singapore, for example. Or um, So there are international institutions um, international financial institutions like the World Bank, the African Development Bank, and others that are pro provide resources. There are UN agencies, um, UNICEF, International Fund for Agricultural Development, World Food Program, FAO, that provide also very important um, uh, both guidance as well as resources and technical assistance to countries. Um, and, and governments like our, the United States government through the uh, USAID, U, the US Agency for International Development supports countries through direct financing uh, through NGOs, or they support, they provide funding through these international mechanisms um, like the World Bank and, and uh, the UN agencies. Um, so there are very different ways in which developing country governments are supported. I should say um, that funding um, is relatively small compared to the need. And the need has grown considerably because of COVID. I mean, the impact of COVID, which we felt in, in terms of our own economy here in the U.S., was felt in um, some of the poorest countries because trade, tourism, everything ground to a halt. Uh, and so, and countries were also spending money to, to protect their populations from COVID, but also then the economic impact of food insecurity. So countries have been spending a lot of money to prevent a rise, you know, um, to prevent the health impacts and the food insecurity impacts. And now with this food price crisis, they're even more vulnerable because they have even less fiscal space because of COVID. And so there is a need for solidarity. I mean, we need to really think about how challenging it's been for us here in the U.S. and, and in, um, in um, Western relatively uh, wealthy countries, the impact has been much more devastating in, um, in Africa, in South Asia, in Latin America. And so there is a need for us to really come together. And what, what the Ukraine crisis, what um, COVID has shown us is our, pro our, and with climate change, where we are increasingly aware that, that our problems are all interconnected. These are all global problems and we really need to treat them as such and come together as a global community to address them. You know, when I have guests on the podcast, I often ask them how they hope things will change five years down the road. You more than most guests have actually defined a, a view of the world. I mean, you're you're really connected to um, was it 2030? So it's more than five years, and and um, yes. So that, describe that again. I mean, how does this? Um, we're talking about how we size up the issue and and how the needs are are really tremendous and they're getting worse. But um, but let's paint a picture again of of what's realistic for this to be better mm -hmm. um, by the time you've taken by 2030. What's how is the world different if you're successful? If we're successful, um, and that's you know I have to cling to that because um, we really do. It was a really visionary. Um, 
agenda. Um, you can learn more about it uh, at, on the UN website. It's, uh, there are def different ways people refer to the Sustainable Development Goals. It's Agenda 2030 or the Global Goals. Um, so, you know, listeners to this podcast can, you know, Google the Sustainable Development Goals. I would really recommend reading um, the, the preamble. It's just a very powerful um, vision for our planet where nobody is going hungry anymore, where, where people don't live in extreme poverty anymore. Um, and the, the World Bank's definition of extreme poverty is li living on less than uh, $1.90, close to $2 a day, um, where girls have equal access to an education, where, uh, you know, we have access to clean drinking water and um, health, health systems that provide for us. Um, you know, these are not lofty. They're just the basic minimum for uh, a decent life. You know, these, we're not saying everybody, these goals really are saying everybody has a right to a decent life and a uh, right to, to nutritious food and um, uh, to be able to live in a city, a sustainable city safely. And, you know, these are things we should all aspire to. Um, you know, we take it for granted in, in where we live, but, um, you know, everybody wants that for their children. And for, uh, you know, children who were born in 2015, they'll be 15 years old by 2030. What kind of planet, what kind of world do they inherit? I think it's really, um, the vision is very powerful. Is it possible to get there? I think it's, it's become, you know, the last three years um, are clearly, um, have set us back quite considerably. And it will take the kind of solidarity uh, that I spoke about earlier to really get us back on track. We were on track to end hunger or, uh, you know, getting significantly close to being on track to end hunger before 2015. It is possible to go back there. Um, but I think we really need to address, you know, some of the challenges I've laid out in terms of, you know, um, improving access to good nutrition, growing our food in sustainable ways, ensuring that people have adequate income to be able to, to buy food. You know, the things that you pointed to that are happening in your community are really important because they're helping people not go hungry today. But if we want to end hunger, people need to, we really need to address some of the underlying issues that are, um, you know, contributing to people not being able to afford um, nutritious food and being, able, you know, uh, not being able to feed their children. So we really need to think, and you, you mentioned homelessness, affordable housing is, is part of the sustainable development goals. We really need to think about how important all of these things are. Having a roof over your head is so important to your ability to, to learn as a child, you know, having electricity. How do, you know, we, we sometimes don't connect the dots between these issues and the sustainable development goals have really um, taken us much further into thinking in a systems way about all the things that are connected. And am I optimistic that it can be done with the right political will? I think there are many really interesting uh, success stories. Um, we've seen countries make dramatic progress um, in, in short periods of time with the right kind of leadership, with the right kind of resources, and with the right kind of support. Um, you know, um, Brazil um, pretty much, uh, I, I think, way more than 
halved hunger in a period of eight years. I think you almost eradicated hunger in a period of eight years in the early part of this century. Um, You know, you've seen Rwanda take um, tremendous strides. Um, China has dramatically reduced hunger over time. Very different kinds of um, countries, governments, uh, leadership. But I think it points to the importance of political will at the highest level and um, and moving countries, you know, and investing in um, in the goals. You know, that's, that's such good examples. And I'm thinking that that you could you pointed out the comment about Brazil, and I didn't know that. Um, in some respects, they haven't gotten good press for quite a while uh, as a country. And it's a, how come that doesn't ever come up? And here in the States, for example, some areas are doing better than other areas. One of the ones that I've heard recently that have made such tremendous strides on on housing uh, is Houston. Houston's done um, a tremendous job. And so we've got other metro areas in the United States uh, that are saying, hey, we need to take a look at what Houston's doing and make sure that we're addressing some of the homelessness issues as well as they have. So there may be lessons there. So it seems to me like something from the perspective that you're in, that you can look at the whole world and you can you can help point out, um, you can learn something from Rwanda. Uh, you know, you can learn something from Brazil. So would it be safe to say that from a policy role, when get into your job, that it's it's looking at how either governments can be encouraged or decisions can be made both on investments, but also exchanges of information or bringing experts into different areas and say, hey, here's what worked for us. So it's not simply a matter of of a check of of sending sending money or moving money here or there, but but you're actually able to coordinate also the the knowledge sharing. Yeah, I think that's such an important point. The um, you know part of the sustainable development goals effort. I mentioned there's an annual check in in July uh, in New York every year on how countries are doing and countries can. Um, come forward and do a voluntary review of their progress. And all of that information is then shared. I mean, they're doing it publicly. They're talking about their challenges, their progress, what worked, what didn't work. I think there's a lot of cross-learning that can happen at that, le- at that level, at the UN level, but also between cities, cities learning from each other, um, communities learning from each other. You know, there's um, there's been a lot of work, for example, in Bangladesh around microcredit and how microcredit, um, you know, small loans to women um, in Bangladesh has, has lifted millions of households out of poverty over the last um, several decades. Is that a model that can be replicated in other parts of the world? Um, could it be replicated here in the US? You know, I think there are lots of um, people who are now thinking about um, cash transfers, for example, or like with SNAP, um, the EBT program that you mentioned. You know, SNAP is one of the largest um, uh, social protection uh, safety net programs in the world. And thank God for SNAP, we don't see the kind of hunger in the United States that you see in other parts of the world, because you've got this program that can grow when need is high and contracts when need is low. Um, Is SNAP perfect? Could it, you know, you pointed out uh, the gap in summer summer meals at school, you know, do SNAP benefits need to expand in the summer so that kids can have, you know, um, so families can have food during the summer? Um, you know, are, are families able to afford the nutritious food uh, through SNAP? I think one could debate all of those things, but SNAP itself is a, it's an amazing model that 
um, you know, other countries could potentially learn from. So um, school meal programs, you know, how do we leverage them to support local agriculture while at the same time uh, providing nutritious meals for children, which helps bring girls to school in developing country contexts? You know, I think there are lots of really interesting ways that we could be thinking about issues. Procure, you know, how do we use our procurement to really support uh, local and regional farm farming communities. Um, there's just lots of potential, and the knowledge management, knowledge sharing, I think, is a big piece of that. You know, I'm sure I have people listening to this podcast right now that are saying that they envy you. Uh, it's such a it's a challenge that you're into, but it's something that's so important. And you, you, you must, I'm sure it makes you feel good to be a part of the, of what you're trying to accomplish, what you're working on, what you're seeing some progress taking place. So I wonder if you might take a, a couple minutes while we wrap up and explain your journey. Um, how did, how did you get into this? How, how do you have this, which some might say a privilege, if it's not a challenge to be able to, to try to work on an impact of something as as noble and important and critical as as global hunger and poverty, um, what got you here? Yeah, thank you for the question, and I do feel privileged to be able to work on the issues that I do. I, I I'm really passionate about them. I was born in India um, a long, long time ago um, uh, when you know, there was quite a significant part of the world's population. I mean, in, I was born long before 1990, but in 1990, a fourth of the world's population um, was suffering from hunger. We are now less than, you know, a tenth, still too many people. So I have seen, you know, there has been significant progress. But coming from India, you know, I want, one was always very conscious of, um how blessed you know how you know privileged my family was that we didn't uh that we didn't have to worry about where our next meal was coming from and so you, you just you know it was something just underlying in my childhood brain and and memory and as i got older you know um my parents were both economist, my mother, a sociologist as well. And so just the dinner table conversations, uh, I had a chance to live abroad. Um, my father worked for the World Bank and I had a chance to live um, in Sri Lanka as well. And so just conscious of different systems, different issues. Um, and so as I was looking at, at my career, you know, I, I really wanted to work on international development and on, you know, issues around hunger and poverty. Um, I So I did a degree in economics um, and my undergraduate degree was in geography, which um, in retrospect, I think really did help, help me think in more systems ways because geography is, of course, the interplay between people, the land and economies. And so, um, so it, you know, I think all of that background really got me interested in the issues I, I um, am now working on. And then I, you know, I had a chance to, I hadn't really thought about advocacy at all, to be honest, I was in a, more on a research track, uh, doing, working on reports and, and uh, things like that. And then um I um, met David Beckman, who is who used to be the president of Bread for the World in Washington, and he um, he persuaded me to to think about advocacy um, in the early in two, it was at the late nineteen ninety nine early two thousands, and um, so I went to work for Bread for the World, learned a lot about advocacy. I learned about how you know how to influence policymakers, and um, uh, worked on on legislation for part of that time. Worked on the policy analysis that needs to underpin advocacy for much of the time, 
And um, now, you know, I've, I joined the SDG2 Advocacy Hub a year ago, which is taking, you know, having spent a lot of time focused in, on the U.S., you know, U, U.S. Are both global policies and domestic hunger policies, I've now moved to the hub, which is looking really mu very much more at the global level, at, uh, you know, um, these sort of the... the um, what's at the more macro level and, and the organizations and agencies that are working at that level. So, yeah, that's my journey in a nutshell. What a great journey. And, and, and it's, um, and to be able to be making a difference with an organization like this, again, I know many people would like to be able to follow that difficult journey. So I want to ask you just in wrapping up, this has been just a really enjoyed this conversation. I've learned a lot and there's, there's more to cover at another time too, but a couple things. One is let's go back and mention again, the websites that people might be able to um, get more information and some ideas, you know, people are listening and they think I'd like to help. I'd like to do something, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's, I'm sure there's charities and so forth that somebody could make an investment in, for example, but be, even beyond that, I mean, just where people can point their interest, where they can get on this road uh, that you're on and find some way as a volunteer, or maybe they go to college and, and get into, into this area of advocacy or working on global issues. How do we learn more where we are right now? And what are some ideas for people that would like to figure out how they join you on this road to a better world? So um, our website, sdg2advocacyhub.org, um, will definitely tell you a lot about SDG2 and some of the initiatives that we are working on around smallholder farmers, um, a, a narrative that we've been um, been developing called Good Food for All that really connects those the five targets of SDG two, and then um, you can learn. We've been working with chefs to talk about how chefs can be part of uh, SDG two as well. So there's a chef's manifesto so that it'll give you lots of ideas of, um, the different ways in which you can connect to these issues. Um, the UN also has a page that's dedicated to, um, the SDG, the sustainable development goals. It's sdgs.un.org backslash goals. You can learn all about the, the goals there. I think for for um, listeners, it's really about figuring out what interests you in this conversation about good food for all. You know, is it the nutrition piece? Is it um, uh, uh, supporting smallholder farmers? Is it the connection between um, agriculture and the environment. I think there, there are organizations that work on various aspects of this. In the US, I think for, for people listening to this podcast here, there are a number of organizations that are working with partners in developing countries on the hunger challenges there. And um, Bread for the World does, as I mentioned, advocacy, then there's Save the Children, Catholic Relief Services, CARE, um, World Vision, um, just to name a few, um, that are doing really good work in communities in, in developing countries to tackle these very issues. So, you know, I think that's one way, both just, you know, um, providing financing, but also learning what they do. And, and then, you know, I think it's really important that um, we educate ourselves about these issues. I mean, we shouldn't, This in the 21st century, we really should not be seeing a rise in hunger. Hunger, we know what to do. Um, we've been doing it. It's a question of prioritization, scaling up resources, um, and it's, and political will. And so I think for all of us, it's, 
it's a, it's a, it should weigh heavily on our conscience that in the 21st century, there are people who are stuff suffering from hunger. When we've done, you know, m- much more difficult things like sending people to the moon and, you know, developing the World Wide Web and, you know, all sorts of things that we've done, hunger is not, it should not be an issue in the 21st century. And, and I think we all need to educate ourselves about these issues and, and push our leaders to think bigger and bolder. You know, I remember somebody teasing me one time, I think sort of jokingly and call me uh, focusing on too much on those damn do-gooders. <laughs> and and uh, then he kind of uh, laugh about it. But there's a lot of people that just, just feel like, well, we need to be driven to do this and we got to increase our profit levels and we got to accomplish this, this, and this. And would kind of tease about being a do-gooder, but uh, count me as one. I want to be a do-gooder. And I'm proud to get to talk to people that are do-gooders and organizations that are, are doing good. I think you are. And I want to thank Osma Latif for being on Farm to Table Talk. Thank you very much for having me. And um, it's better to be a do-gooder than the opposite. Right? I think so. I think so. <laughs> do-gooders unite. I might change the name of the podcast. <laughs> Farm to Table Talk especially for do-gooders. And I think there are lots of self-interested reasons to focus on these issues too. You've been listening to Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. 